0: All right, so we're going to finish up Philadelphia and then we're going to jump into Laodicea. And then um, I don't know if I'll get to a lot of Laodicea today, but we will try. So that uh, next week we'll finish up all the churches and do an overview. We may have a Q&A if anybody cares. Um, if not, and you guys are just really ready to race off into chapter four, we can do that. Um, so we'll just take that and play it by ear. Um, last week we got up to the point where we were talking about, um, um, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan come and bow down at your feet. And we talked about a compulsion and we likened it to, uh, that where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at the judgment. And, and uh, then there was a sidebar discussion about, um, Is the final judgment the actual final judgment, uh, or do people get second chances? And um, uh, the idea is no, you don't, that's it. So, um, and there's a lot of theological reasons, and we could spend a lot of time going through that, but um, we won't um, for now. So we're going to go back into uh, this. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they will learn that I love you. And again, we have to put this in the context of, of a Jewish church or a Jewish persecution of the church at this particular time. And this actually has significance And it has significance back to Isaiah and Ezekiel and all the different prophecies that were said to the Jewish people about the Gentiles coming in and acknowledging that the Gentiles were God's chosen people. So this is a flip. Well, it would have appeared to the Jewish people to be a flip, but it actually is God's intended purpose. God had intended to... um, You guys understand what topology is, right? The idea of a picture in the Old Testament that is made fuller and brought into its fullness in the New Testament and then will eventually be consummated in the new creation. Uh, The Jewish nation is a type of God's people that was intended to, to be made larger and more glorious by the bringing in of all nations and uh, and then um, and then that will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth, where God comes and dwells in His people and with His people. So, um, for Jesus to make this statement to the Gentiles is would be abhorrent to the Jews. Um, it would be it would say a lot of things to them. One that it's a violation of the covenant that God no longer favored them as the people, uh, the chosen race uh, of people. So this would have said a lot of things to the Jewish persecutors. And again, the idea being, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on um, Jewish ethnicity and covenant at this particular time. Uh, know this, that in, in, especially in American and Western Christianity, this is a hot topic Um, And it is so because there are a lot of people that almost hold the Jewish nation as the fourth member of the Trinity. And for anybody to say anything otherwise is heresy. Um, And that's where a lot of the dispensational thought comes in that it's all going to be. That's why there's a millennial reign. That's why dispensationalists hold to a millennial reign because they absolutely hold to the idea that God must physically fulfill his promises to Abraham and because that will not happen, that they can see within the Revelation context, especially during the seven-year tribulation, they have assigned that to the millennium. And the millennium, the thousand-year reign, the literal thousand-year reign, according to the dispensationalists, will be the fulfillment of all the promises made to the Jewish people. There will be a reinstatement of tabernacle temple worship. Uh, all the sacrifices will be reinstated, the priesthood will be reinstated, all of these things will be reinstated, while we as Gentile Christians will live in a glorified state with them, but separate in a kind of a spiritual, ethereal kind of way. Um, So, and that's all done because of the emphasis and the, the, um, I'm going to say reverence that's put on the Jewish nation by dispensational... Uh, dispensational thought I do not hold to that Um, it's clear that whoever violates the covenant in scripture is no longer a recipient of the covenant promises that's Old Testament theology so for the Jews to have violated so completely Old Testament uh, the covenant of the Old Testament and then continue to claim that they are God's covenant people is a conundrum It's a theological conundrum. So um, God's intention is that it grows bigger. God's intention for the Jewish nation was to be a type. Does he still love the Jewish people? Yes. Does he love the Ethiopians? Yes. Does he love Madagascar people? Which one does he love more? Neither. Huh? (laughs) The Romanians. All right. They are God's favored. Uh, so so the the idea is when you start to really understand this concept and you put it into biblical theology and you start to understand how it works in soteriology um then you start to understand that it's really kind of odd to hold to this. And if when you, when you start to think about the reinstatement of the tabernacle, and the reinstatement of the Jewish festivals, and the reinstatement of all the feasts, and the reinstatement of all the sacrifices, after Jesus claimed to be all in all, once for all, the tabernacle, the fulfillment of all sacrifices, the fulfillment of all feasts, all things summed up in Him, to go back to something that he has already established and completed and fulfilled is a theological, uh, uh, a grave theological conflict. You create a problem with what Jesus has, has himself said. So, many ways, that's why I have become... Uh, millennialist because uh, I don't hold to that particular viewpoint nor do I hold to a literal thousand year reign um, any more than I believe that Jesus actually seven, held seven stars in his hand or does so now not a literal seven stars it's a symbol and we have to, we have to understand that the millennium is symbolic language it's not a literal thousand years okay so with that being said, this statement about the, Jew, the Jews coming worship and worship and, and bowing down at the feet of the Gentiles and, and acknowledging that God has loved them is quite a major statement. And the idea here, as many commentators, even some that I hold very, very highly, suggest that this indicates the salvation of the Jewish people, which a lot of people point to Romans chapter 9, in different places like that, saying that God will, again, save all the Jewish people. Well, that, again, is a very interesting statement, and we don't have time to go into that. But understand this, this the, the word that is being used here for bow down is more of paying homage to, not worship. And if, in fact, it was salvific in nature, or meaning that this had to do with salvation, then why would they bow at the feet of a person And why would it say that Jesus, I will make them? So there's a compunction being stated here. Jesus will make these. This is a vindication statement. This is a statement of vindication. Those who have accused you, those who have persecuted you, those who have slighted you, those who have railed against you will come and acknowledge that it is I who have loved you. This is a vindicated statement. It does not signify the salvation of the nation of Israel. It simply says, as does revelation in in the fullness of its theme, that your enemies will acknowledge that I have loved you. That I will pass judgment on the enemies of those who have opposed the purposes of Christ Jesus will acknowledge that my way is the only way. That's what this is saying. Okay, any questions with that? I went really fast over that. There's a lot of theological significance in there. Um, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it. We will flesh this out more as we go through the Scripture because we will we will compare dispensational thought with uh, the, the thinking that we're teaching from as we go through, and there'll be plenty of opportunity, especially when we get to chapter 19, 20, and 21, to discuss this further. Am I going too fast? Okay, good. All right, let's, um, let's read this in context real quick. And then I have a few more pages, and then we're going to be done with uh, Philadelphia. Again, this is a church that is was established to bring the Hellenist culture to a, a particular area in Lydia. Um, and they did so, so well that the Lydian language within 100 years was, had, did not, was not even spoken in the region. They were very successful at proselytizing, very good at it. And the idea of setting before them an open door must correspond to the idea of missionary work and the idea of propagating the gospel. Because you were established as a missionary church and have done it so well, and because you have kept the word of my faith and have been a, uh, a, 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 a witness for me in this particular place, I'm going to set before you an open door. And that is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and that is what we're all charged to. So this is a very, very good statement to have... S- have said over a given church, you will fulfill my mandate. I've set before you an open door. Go therefore into all the nation, and preach the gospel, making disciples of every nation. Okay? So, uh, let's see. So, it's, let's read this real quick, and then we'll, we'll finish up. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, Jewish illusion, Old Testament um, Hebrew illusion? who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, allusion to their missionary outreach. God has opened the door, paved the way for them, uh, which no one will be able to shut, which is again a counter to what the, uh, the Jewish people were saying. Um I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Speaks of a single event, usually based on the construct of the Greek language here. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay? That's where we left off. Now we're going here. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour this is a big one. This is a big one, but this has a lot of ramifications on dispensational thought as well. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is a statement of vacating a spot and having it, having it stepped into by another. And there are three illusions or four illusions to that event happening throughout this letter. Okay. Um, hold fast uh, so that no one may seize your crown the one who conquers I will make them a pillar in the temple of God remember why is this important remember anything about the church at Philadelphia and what they were going through earthquakes. earthquakes continued aftershocks for years people were afraid to live in the city so they moved out and lived in huts listen to the language I will make you Make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Interesting language. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All right. Let's go down to the phrase that we're at now, which is because you have kept the word about patient, uh, kept my word about patient endurance. Okay. How many times through scripture does God talk about patient endurance? Like a lot. Like a lot. Okay. This is where a lot of Christians get fouled up because patient endurance has to do with perseverance he who perseveres to the end he continues he who puts his shoulder to the plow and keeps moving forward he who does not look back he who counts the costs all of these things have to do with his perseverance a wise man though he falls seven times what stays down he gets up right and this is where we run into a problem and this is what legalist christianity will do to you he who falls down stays down because it's a one-time event, I screwed up. Of course, you did. I, I could probably guarantee that most of you will not make it to the door before the end of the service. Before you've done something that's out of character with what Christ is requiring of us, you'll think something, you'll do something, you'll you'll, you'll you know you'll say something, and then you go, oh, I I probably shouldn't have said that or. Oh, that was a little harsh. Or it's because it's the nature of fallen humanity. What was that? No, No. I have confidence. I have every confidence in you. It's that I have (laughs) confidence in who Jesus is. The point is, is that yes, the point is, is that you are redeemed and reconciled. And so even though we do that as a people, we are redeemed and we persevere. Now, I don't say that to our discredit. I just say that because we're human beings. And we try so hard in Christianity to not be human beings. We try very hard to become something that we're not. And then we beat ourselves up because we can't do it. So I would suggest to you that most Christians live in this perpetual cycle of trying to be better. Let me just ease your mind right here and now. You can't be. The only, you can't be. God through you can be. It's the internal, the thing that has been born again within you, the new man, it bears its own fruit. By nature. By its very nature, it bears its own fruit. How many of you have to try to sin? Not hard at all, is it? <laughs> so as the new man, we should be able to bear fruit, not because of our own efforts and not because we struggle so, because it's just a natural byproduct of the new life that's birthed within us. And when we begin to live in this capacity, we will find that we no longer concern ourselves with ourselves because Christ is doing that for us. We're now able to look out. We're now able to be functioning outside of ourselves. We're now able to turn our attention outward. We can now do the things that Jesus wants us to do because we're not worried about how we look. And this is what this statement means here. Uh, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Because you understand these things. You keep going. You drive forward forward. You move forward, but listen to what this says. It actually says in the Greek, actually says here, because you have kept the word of my patient endurance. Jesus saying this, because you have kept the word of my patient endurance. The the, the same phrase is actually used in the statement that just shall live by faith. The phrase there actually indicates that it's Jesus' faith. You're living in accordance to Jesus' faith whom you are now in. This is the same idea. You have patient endurance because Jesus is able to sustain you. Do you give up trying? No. It's not what we're saying here. But the onus is not on your personal accomplishments and your ability to do what Jesus wants you to do. The onus is learning on how to rest in who he is and tap into his strength and then move forward. How many of you actually understand that when, when Jesus said on the cross, it's finished, it was actually a true statement? Sin is done. It is finished. How many of you live in the space of that being finished. I would say, uh, good, we should. We should more and more begin to learn what that means. Because the, Spirit, the, the Bible says, whom the Son has set free is what? And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is? So when we look at ourselves in the mirror on a Sunday morning or a Monday morning, do we see a free person? Or do we see somebody who's really struggling to try and figure out how to be free? <coughs> These are the things we have to consider. In 2 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul speaks of the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ, is what he says. So the idea here is that the Philadelphian believers had emulated the patient endurance or steadfastness demonstrated by Christ in uh, Christ uh, in demonstrated by Christ during his incarnation in and pas- passion. In this there is also an eschatological idea of patient endurance and anticipation of the return of Christ. So why are we patiently enduring? In Laodicea we'll talk about that. How many of you ever heard a guy named Steve Camp? It's an old Christian artist in the 80s yeah old christian artist in the singer uh in the uh, in the 80s and he wrote a song called laodicea and the lyrics are now we're living in laodicea uh in the fire that once burned bright we've let it grow cold and the very one we swore that we would die for oh has been forgotten and the world has now become our home and so it, once we establish that we're members of this world society the endurance is no, is no longer um, paramount in the way that we function. We, are, we endure because this world is not our home. We endure because there's something better for us. We are moving toward and through to something that's better. And, and when we forget that, we become stagnant. We slow down. We stop. We function within the surroundings instead of passing through it. Does that make sense? So, this idea of patient endurance. Jesus set his face like flint to where? Jerusalem. What was going to happen in Jerusalem? The cross. Was he aware of this? And yet he still was unmoved. Right? Because he knew that it was through the cross, through the things in this world, as he... he this, this world was not what he was, what, what he was about. He was looking forward, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And so that should be our, our point here, and this is, he, this is what J, uh, uh, John is saying to this church. You've endured, uh, Jesus is saying to the church, because you've kept the word of my patient endurance. Because of the joy that's been set before you, you endure It's easy to take our eyes off of our final goal, especially what's going on in the world today. And we go from here to here. And, oh my gosh, did you see what so-and-so said? Did you see the shootings? Did you, what is this world coming to? Exactly what it's supposed to. Exactly what it's supposed to. It's a world that's governed by an anti-Christian, anti-Christ beast. What? else would we consider it to look like? Okay, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so keep these in context because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and try those who dwell on the earth. Now, here's where we get into some fun stuff. For those who hold to a futurist interpretation... Futurist again, what is a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation? Who knows? Just blurt it out. Everything's Everything's happening in the future. It's pretty well self-explanatory. So let me explain this to you. The idea here is is that when you talk about a futurist or a dispensationalist, usually a futurist is dispensational, what you get is you get Revelation chapter 1, is a, uh, a declaration of who Jesus is for all time. By the way, did you know that in chapter 1, when Jesus is described, how, what have we said about the, the number 7? It's the, 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 the number in Revelation of completion, right? Of perfection. How many attributes in Revelation chapter 1 are directly mentioned about who Christ is? seven so the idea being that in chapter uh, revelation chapter one you have a full picture of who jesus christ is it's really cool so you know if you have some time this week just go back and read that it talks about his right hand his mouth his hair his feet so (coughs) chapter one talks about jesus (coughs) sorry and it gives an introduction all right and then chapters two through three are about the church now if you're a futurist you do hold that this is actually to a church to seven literal churches but at the same time you understand and 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 they'll most all of them will say that this also has to do with the 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 church age this is what the church is going to be going through however from chapter four and sometimes five depending on how you understand it chapter four And I want to say 219, and I may be wrong there, it may be 18, but uh, let's just go 18. No, let's don't, let's go 19. Chapter 19, you're talking about everything that goes on in what they call a great tribulation. I keep drawing this out, but I want you guys to really get an understanding of how this is normally read. The Great Tribulation, and then chapters, what, uh, 20 through 21, uh, usually have to do with Millennium, and then the Great, the great Eternity afterwards. So the idea in Futurist concept is, is that right here, the church is taken out. This is the rapture. Okay. Based on 1 Thessalonians and like scriptures. And this one. This is one of those that they, they point to for a rapture theory. And I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth. And they use that as being demonstrative of the fact that we're talking still about the church age. And then after the church age, we go into the visions of the future. Okay, does that make sense? Are you guys following me? Okay, now like I said last week, I've, I found it very difficult for me to just divorce myself from my dispensational roots. And I find myself contending with my own history when I read some of this stuff. And the idea of the tribulation that's coming on the whole world is one of those that I had to really struggle with because it sounds futurist. And based on what we understand about a tribulation, we, we want to project that into the future. I will keep those. But remember, who is he talking to? First century Christians. So if we're looking forward to a seven-year tribulation that happens after a church's rapture 2,000 years in advance of what he's writing to a church, does that all of a sudden make sense? Not really. Not really. Because it's not going to matter to these people because they're going to die. So I will keep those who endure from the tribulation that's about to come on the whole earth. Okay, great. Doesn't mean me, I'll be dead before then. Unfortunately, most people read Revelation in that capacity. What do I care what goes on from chapter 4 on? I'm not going to be here. I get to be raptured out. That just makes all of this right here inconsequential, irrelevant. It's just a good story. It has no bearing. So I want to counter this and say this in light of clear teaching of Scripture, this has to be understood as primarily spiritual protection rather than physical. For there is nowhere in Revelation where believers are promised immunity from physical suffering. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, the opposite is promised. The idea of those who, must, who follow me must take up their cross daily. What does the cross represent? Suffering. We like to put it in nice little terms that kind of deflect the severity of it and say self-denial. oh, I'm just going to deny myself. No, the idea is that you die, you put your flesh to death heinously. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. The idea is not that you go home and yank your eye out. The idea is that you do what is necessary to keep yourself on the right course. He who will follow me must take up his cross daily and follow me. There is no scripture in the Bible that suggests that Christians are immune from persecution and physical suffering on this earth. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation and the the message to the seven churches actually speaks of something different. That's why when you listen to the TV and you hear what these believers are saying about how God wants to bless you and keep you happy and make everything work for you and blah, 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 blah that they're saying, they completely divorce Christianity from its true essence God is not a credit card he's not here to make your life bliss as a matter of fact to have him call you is to have him call you to a life of suffering self-denial and physical issues okay so this notion of that the statement here is a lifting of the church out so that they can avoid the persecution. Let me just ask you a simple question. Where were the children of Israel during the plagues of Egypt? They were there. They weren't in the Bahamas. Eight people saved what? Not from, through we have to keep this in mind this is a spiritual promise and I will keep those from the great tribulation that is about to come now we have to put this also in context of first century does this have relevance to the first century believers or was it intended to okay so Jesus is saying to the first Christian the first century Philadelphian church and I will keep you from the persecution that's about to come and will come on the whole world. Now, we use that and the whole world to be like some kind of global event, right? But if, in fact, we're talking about revelations being applicable throughout the inter, inter, uh, inter-advental inter period from Jesus' first coming to his second consummation, then we have to suggest that there are going to be those paces, places throughout where persecution is rampant. Now, I'm sure that there were Christians during the 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 Nazi, the Hitler reign that were just absolutely sure that this was it why because they went through things that nobody had that we've never gone through what about roman christians who had to watch their children be fed to wild animals i would consider that a great persecution so we see repetitively throughout the cycle of christendom throughout the interadvental age times of great trial. And yes, there are times that are very, very concentrated. Where, where in Africa are they just killing off Christians left and right? It's happening right now. Sudan. Uh, isn't it Ethiopia, too, that they're killing them? They're just... It's, as a matter of fact, one of the bishops uh, of the... i think it, I want to say it's the Episcopalian Church. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's a Catholic priest or not. But he is actually saying that in Ethiopia, Christianity is about to become extinct. So, this word to the Philadelphian church is now applicable to the, church, to the church in Ethiopia. I will keep you in the hour of great trial that's coming on the whole earth. What that means is, is that there's not any place that's exempt. It may have foreshadowing to a great tribulation, the difference being that in, and, and, and at what, what I will call a, a, an antichrist crisis, in, that is still in the future. We have not yet seen this particular reiteration of the same system that's been going on. Right? You've got who Nimrod, uh, Nimrod, the, the King of Tyre, Babylon, Rome, and you could go on down the line. Right? We may not be in that space right at this particular junction. But it appears that the Bible speaks about another great event that's about to cycle back through. And the difference is going to be that these were isolated. True, Rome was oppressive to the known world at that time. But there were places in the world that you could go to. What's the difference now? It's globally connected. And so if there is going to be another one of these persecutions or these Roman renaissance, I'll just use that word, there's no place to go from it. Because every part of the world as we know it is accessible. Right? So, I mean, the Christians, the Christians in the, in the uh, what, in the 1600s, The Puritans, they could flee England, right? Because of religious persecution. Where could they go? Here? Right. So if they start persecuting Christians, say, in California, and we're under a a, a rule where all the world's uh, governments are anti-Christian, which is where we might be headed with the whole globalist idea, where are you going to go? So what this is doing is it's just a recapitulation of the same series of events. Now it will intensify as we get closer to the consummation of Christ returning here. But that's not to say that that this passage only bypasses all of this and only focuses on that. This statement has to do that I will keep you from the hour of persecution that's coming on the whole world has to do with this, 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 this. Okay, does it make sense? Any questions on that? Did I explain this all right? <laughs> you guys, following what I'm saying, yes. So thought, it like oh yeah, microphone, microphone. Sorry, uh, I'm being scolded because there's these giant voids in the in the in the recording. So according to Dispensational Thought, between chapters 3 and chapter 4, there seems to be a tremendous gap in time. Uh, well, if you believe what Jesus says uh, or what is said by Paul in 1 Thessalonians, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the church would be caught away. Uh, it's very possible that this, this gap that some people suggest, I know where you're coming from. You're saying that there's a big gap between the idea of of um yeah now that i'm thinking about it yes the answer to that question is simply yes from the end of chapter three is the end of the first century church and from the pickup of chapter four we don't have anything going on until the rapture of the church and all things are starting to consummate that we understand about being because in this particular theology Chapters 4 through 19 only concern a, a seven year period in the world history. Okay? But what I'm saying to you is, is that this statement actually has to do with all tribulation throughout. Okay? This, the, the, yes? So, back to that question, uh, back to that issue about that gap in uh, history what do dispensationalists say about, for example, the last 2,000 years? How that fits in the, uh, uh, you know, revelations. Well, that, what this it, what this is is so like what what I understand is okay. So can I erase this? You guys okay? All right. Um, so my understanding of this is that there's a different connotation or there's a different definition given to the idea of uh, the church age. Okay. So our millennial perspective would be this. Would be Jesus comes, right, first uh, um, incarnation, and then his resurrection and ascension, and then we have this, and then we have his second coming, and the millennial, pers- uh, the millennial perspective would be that this is the church age. Okay, and this is where Revelation, in its entirety, in its entirety, has an application. Okay, so this is the all millennial perspective. Okay, is everybody following me so far? All right. If you look at pre, if you look at uh, dispensationalism, what they say is that Jesus came first time, uh, incarnation. Resurrection, and he established his church, church age. Okay, we're in agreement to this point, right? But then, there is a second coming here, second coming. But right here, there's a rapture. Whereas all millennials would suggest that the church age in, ends right here, at the second coming, uh, dispensationalists would suggest that this is the end of the church age, the rapture, okay? So a, a, a dispensationalist would suggest that this is the church age that, that starts at the incarnation and ends at the rapture, and now this right here is where Revelation has applicability within this seven-year span right here. Okay? Whereas all millennialists would hold that this is the millennium right here, and he must reign, current tense, until he puts all enemies under his feet, right? Right? Here, the dispensationalists put it here. And they equate it as a physical reign. Okay? This is a spiritual reign. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So, that's the differences between the two understandings. So, when you take a scripture that says, And I will keep you from the hour of tribulation, like is what is being said to the Philadelphian church, what a dispensationalist will understand is that. That verse speaks of this event. I will keep you from this. I will rapture you out. What an amillennialist hold is that just like I kept the children of Israel in Egypt while the plagues were raging around them, so will I keep you from those, that hour. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions on that? Josh, perspective of the rapture, in the am- amillennial perspective the rapture occurs after chapter three in Revelation. That was what you spoke yeah. before. Yeah. And so they don't go through all the stuff that we're going to learn about. No. Yeah. Dispensational. Sorry. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Amillennial holds that from chapter four on is a picture of what's going on throughout the church age, d- done in symbolic language. All right. So it's all symbolic behind the scenes at a, at, a, at a, let me let you see in language that, in pictorial language that you can understand what the enemy is doing in a spiritual position or from a spiritual perspective. What dispensationalists believe is that this is literally what's going to happen. That there's going to be some kind of false Christ and, and beast that's going to be personified in one human being after the church is taken out and that he will be shot in the head and actually die and, resurre- and, and appear to be resurrected and come into power and take global power and then wage war on Israel because the church is no longer there set up a peace pe- treaty with Israel and then violate the peace treaty three and a half years at, during the, the tribulation period. And then after that, it, all hell breaks loose literally on the earth for the last three and a half years. And then Jesus comes back at this particular time on the second coming, Battle of Armageddon, which, by the way, is a very interesting statement. Ma-gedon. Right here. Lucifer and everybody are thrown into a pit temporarily. There's a perfect reign here with Israel redoing redoing all the temple stuff and the saints are kind of up here doing I don't know what all. And then here Lucifer is reintroduced. And off we go again. <laughs> it's pretty complicated, right? Rick if for the amillennialists, the rapture takes place at the return of Christ because the church is caught up. The only place that phrase is even referred to is in Thessalonians when it talks about being caught up with Christ, yeah. caught up with him in the air. So for amillennialists believe that that's when the church is caught up, is when Jesus is returning to the earth, and those that are still alive on the earth will be caught up with him and come down, and re- and come down to the earth with him yeah. for eternity. For the new earth right the consummation of the new creation okay so that's kind of amillennialist dispensationalist all nutshelled but do you you understand how dramatically different the two hermeneutics will actually cause you to read revelation this is one of my things i've been saying this to my wife ever since i started this study i cannot believe how we've emasculated one of the most important books of the bible with this particular thought We have removed one of the most important books of the Bible from our theology because we stick it off into a future event that the church is not even going to be around for. Terrible, horrible, sorrowful, woeful. This is a message of hope to the church in this age. That there's a war raging behind the scene and Jesus says, hey, let me just show you what this war looks like. And we go, oh my gosh. And then the calls to perseverance, okay? I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Okay. I'm just going to read this because I'm running out of time. I am coming soon since this is a promise made to the Philadelphian church as well as to the church throughout the interadvental period. It is unlikely that this is a reference to the Perusia. the Perusia is just a a uh, fancy word for second coming. Okay. Instead, when read in context with the above promise, it seems better to understand that Jesus promises to come soon and strengthen the believers in their hour of trial. OK, so this is an ongoing thing. Behold, I'm coming soon. When understood in context of what's being said, what Jesus is actually promising the church in Philadelphia is persevere till the end I will come and help you that way throughout scripture we know or throughout the interadvental age we know that whenever we go through the hour of persecution Jesus will be there to to undergird us to lift us up to strengthen us to carry us through to help us okay so I am coming soon, hold fast to what you have, that no one may see, seize your crown. Hold fast to what you have. This could be an encouragement drawn from the previously mentioned reference, uh, inference that ethnic Israel, having rejected the Messiah, had abdicated their position to the, and the, church, uh, uh, to the church now crowned as true Israel. Um, the statement here is much like the parable of the talents. Okay, the parable of the talents, invest, do. If you bury your talents, what does Jesus say? I'll take it from the one and give it to another. Okay, Uh, also 2 Peter 1, 5-10 is applicable for this very reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection brotherly affection with love. If, for if these qualities are yours uh, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he, is, uh, what he was cleansed from, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Okay? That's uh, 2 Peter, uh, Peter 1, 5 through 5-10. Right, I have a couple more minutes and we're going to close here. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, this is very key. I will make him a pillar. Why is that, why is that statement important to a person from Philadelphia? Earthquakes. I will secure your dwelling place. I will make you secure in your eternal position. No more will you have to go outside the city because of the earthquakes, because of the instableness of the surroundings, because of the continued aftershocks that are going on in culture right now, because of all of the stuff that we're seeing as everything that can be shaken is being shaken. Does that not refer to an earthquake? And we're living right in the middle of the Philadelphian aftershocks. Where nothing seems secure. Where we wake up in the morning and we go, who shot who and who's doing what? And sometimes we feel like moving out into a field and building a hut. Right? But what does Jesus say? Behold, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Wow, that's a pretty powerful statement. Never shall you go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the holy city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, and my own new, new name. G.K. Beals basically says that these four promises are really four aspects of one promise. They are all expressions of the eternal union with God and fellowship with Him in perfect communion in the new creation. Okay, we've already talked about the, the pillar. Uh, I will write on in the name of my God. Uh, we've, we've understood that to be the election, the ceiling that we, that we will see later on. It's, it's, uh, it's usurped by the beast who marks his own with a name and a number. Jesus seals those who are His with His name. name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, comes, out of, uh, comes down uh, from God out of heaven. Ezekiel 48, 35, we find that the name of, uh, of the city of God is the Lord is there. And I will write on them the name of the New Jerusalem, the Lord is there. Just simply a statement of promise that God will dwell with His people forever. Okay. There's more to that. I have notes that I can post if you guys are interested. Um, and my own new name. The new name uh, is that mysterious and uncommunicated name referred to in, chapter, in uh, Revelation 19.12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his he- head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Okay. All of these are given to those who conquer. You will be identified. You will be sealed with the name of God. The enemy tries to counter that with a mark. Okay? Now, an interesting point here as we um, go on. I want to just read this. Edward Gibbons, uh, who was a historian, wrote in The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire... Uh, I'm just going to read exactly what he wrote so you guys can understand this. Remember, Philadelphia is the only church of its kind in all of the seven. It's the faithful witness. It is the one that's light is bright, shining the brightest. And Edwards wrote this, In the loss of Ephesus, the Christians deplored the fall of the first angel, the extinction of the first candlestick of the Revelation. The desolation is complete, and the Temple of Diana or the Church of Mary, the ancient Christian cathedral at Ephesus, will equally elude the search of curious travelers, which means that it does not exist anymore. Ephesus no longer exists is what he's saying. The circus and the three stately theaters of Laodicea are now peopled with wolves and foxes. Sardis is reduced to a miserable village, the God of Muhammad, without a rival or a son, is invoked in the mosques of Thyatira and Pergamum. And the populace of Smyrna is supported by the foreign trade of the Franks and the Armenians. Philadelphia alone has been saved by prophecy or courage. At a distance from the sea, forgotten by the emperors, encompassed by, on all sides by the Turks, her valiant citizens defended their religion and freedom above fourscore years and at length capitulated to the Ottomans. Among the Greek colonies and churches of Asia, Philadelphia, listen to this, is still erect. A column in the sea of ruin, a pleasing example of the paths of honor and safety in the name of God. Philadelphia is the only church that remains to this day. And remember what it was said I will make you a pillar. I'm sorry, say that again, Kevin. Uh, I, I, can't but, uh, I can't help but think that uh, Paul said, that uh, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is. this is what is referred to by this uh, historian. Okay. So it's the only church that still remains out of all seven the brightest, the one that bore witness to who Jesus was the most vehemently. All right? So we're going to do Laodicea next week. It's not a pleasant thought, and I'm sure that we're going to see a lot of American Christianity in that church. So um, let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that our light from our stand would shine bright. I pray this morning that we would reflect And make known who you are. That you would take delight in who we are. That you would find your dwelling place among us this morning. And rejoice in your people as we lift your name and celebrate who you are. We are grateful for all that you've done for us, Lord. We declare that you are king and you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.